familia? The text we have this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to read one verse. We're going to read verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. And the word of the Lord goes like this. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts may be pleasing to you. And we all say, Last sermon of this amazing series that we have called Living Hope, Christ in the Midst of Chaos. And today we actually, we are paying attention to one phrase alone. My whole sermon is going to be on one phrase alone. Second part of 12, uh, verse 12 says, this is the true grace of God. Stand fast or firm in it. Peter writes this, this letter to a bunch of hopeless people. People have uh, decided to follow Jesus and things have gone terri- terribly wrong. People have started to question their faith. People that are walking around with guilt and shame and fear. People that need something in the midst of chaos. See, if a religious person would look at this group of people... He, he would look at them and say something like this. What's wrong with you? You're a Christian. You shouldn't feel that way. This is not how Christians behave. What you need to do is to read more, pray more, fast more, give more, serve more, do more. Stand firm. That's what a religious person would say. A non-religious person will look at them and say, you see, told you, not worth it. All this religious stuff is not worth it. Just quit. Your faith is a failure. Your God is a failure. At the end of the day, religion is foolish. But you can make it happen. You have it within you to make things happen. You got the power. You can face anything and stand firm. But Peter, that is a Christian, that sees things different, approaches this group of people in a completely different way. See, Peter knows that these two groups, the religious and the irreligious, are using the same approach to deal with suffering. Their approach is highly humanistic. You could do it. Everything starts with you and finishes with you. Everything is about putting hope on yourself. This is what religious people and irreligious people do. This is what they share in common. But Peter that knows best knows that the only thing that sustains people in the midst of chaos, the only thing that sustains people in the midst of chaos is grace, the concept of grace, and the power of grace. So this, this week, as I was uh, studying this, uh, this passage, actually this sentence, 
um, I found myself thinking that, that if anything goes wrong with me, if, if illness comes my way, if, if I lose someone that I truly love, if God forbid, but if I, if I wander away from the Lord, if I go through a really rough time in my life and I lose everything that I am and everything that I have, the only message I want to hear is this message. The only message I want to hear is this message. Stand firm in the grace of God. Let, let me tell you why I'm telling you this. It's because I need you to memorize this. Because if I go down, you have to use this message to get me out of the hole. You have to use the message of the grace of God, standing in the grace of God, to get me out of the hole. Amen? You agree with it. You better follow through. Grace is that important. Is that supreme? So what I want to do today, I want to spend two hours talking about this. We want to talk about the concept of grace, and we want to talk about the power of grace. The concept of grace, I'm answering the question, what is grace? And the power of grace, I'm answering the question, why do we need it? Why is grace? What is grace, and why do we need it? Ready? Let's go with the first one, the concept of grace. See, grace is one of those words that we use all the time. It's a very popular word within the church and outside the church. For religious people and irreligious people, we all use the term grace. We use it so and so much that in my opinion, we have lost the biblical definition of the word grace. We just use it. But for Peter, as he writes this letter, grace changes everything. That's why he uses the word six times in the letter. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 10, and he relates grace to salvation. He talks about the salvation of grace. In chapter 1, verse uh, 13, he relates grace to holiness and grace to the future. And he talks about the grace that will be brought to you. In chapter 3, verse 7, he relates grace to marriage. And he calls it the grace of life. In chapter 4, verse 10, he relates grace to community and grace to gifts and talents and calls us to be stewards of God's grace. In chapter 5, he relates grace to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and he calls God the God of all grace. And lastly, we have this one here in chapter 5, verse 12, when he calls us to stand firm in the grace of God. The question is why? Why use this word time after time in such a short letter? Well, because he wants us to understand that grace is the summary of the Christian message. Grace is the summary of the Christian message. If you want to understand what Christianity is all about, you have to understand grace. If you want to understand why Christianity is unique to any other, compared to any other religious group, is because of grace. If you don't understand the concept of grace, if you don't cling to the concept of grace, you have no Christianity, just religion. 
That's why some people have said that grace is the center of the Bible and the center of Christianity. If there's no grace, there's no Christianity, and there's no Christianity without grace. What is it then? Well, here, this is important because Peter uses a word here that is pro- in, in, in Greek that is pronounced charis. Can you, hey, can you say charis? That was awful. I know that the word is spelled different, C-H-A-R-I-S, but the word, the pronunciation is charis. I know that you're going to say, well, you have nothing to say about pronunciation. That's, that's a different point, <laughs> all right? But it's really, really interesting because what I'm about to do is I want to give you about 10, 10 minutes of just teaching. So I'm going to need you to stay with me, okay? Nothing funny, nothing there. Just stay with me. Can you do that, class? The word grace, charis, appears 156 times in the New Testament. And the New Testament uses, uses different words besides or in addition to grace. It uses the word charis to describe goodness or love compassion, mercy. And it's really interesting because the definition in the New Testament of all of these words, including grace, is when God gives you something you don't deserve. And if you notice in the New Testament, always you find the word grace and the word mercy together. And the reason why you find it together is because if, if grace is God giving you what you don't deserve, Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. You follow? Now, this is what is interesting. That every time you find that word in the New Testament, the originator, the initiator, the author is always God. He is the source. He is the source. He doesn't have anything to do with us. We don't look for it. We don't pay for it. We don't buy it. We don't do anything. It always starts with God, and it's always free. It's really interesting. Because there's nothing in the New Testament that says that you could do anything to earn or work for God's grace. This is what is interesting, though. That this is not just a concept in the New Testament. The Old Testament uses another two words in Hebrew to describe the concept of grace. The, the second one here is the word henna. Can you say henna? And the second one is the word hesed. Can you say hesed? The word henna appears about 200 times in the Old Testament. And it's this beautiful word that describes, creates this image, this picture of a, of a benevolent um, act or a kind act from a superior to a to an inferior is when a superior shows kindness to an inferior is when a superior delivers or gives freedom to an inferior is when a superior shows compassion to an inferior is this image of a king that is full of grace and full of mercy that lacks nothing and needs nothing and yet when he sees the condition of an inferior is moved and wants to rescue them. Chesed appears 240 times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And I think that is the best word in the Old Testament to understand the concept of grace. Because he's giving us this description of the love of God, which is a one-way love. It's a way that it starts with God and it finishes with God. It's actually where we get the concept of covenant, of an oath. 
And he tells you that God loves people in a one-way love, in a covenant way, in a covenant way. That he commits to his people and never goes away. That he makes promises to his people and that never changes. It does not change regardless of what you do or don't do. You cannot increase his love and you cannot decrease his love. His love is not bound by circumstances. His love is not bound by your behavior or your misbehavior. That's that word. It's an amazing word. Psalm 136 uses this concept 26 times. So whenever you're going through rough times, you feel depressed. That's the psalm to go to. And he uses the phrase 26 times, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. He tells us that God is good because he's a God of grace. He is good. He's God of gods. He's the Lord of lords because his love endures forever. He tells you that the reason why he created this world and he created Adam and Eve. He didn't need Adam and Eve. Perfect communion with the Father, perfect communion with the Son, perfect communion with the Spirit. The only reason why he created the world was because of grace. And he created, and he does wonders, he says, and he made the heavens, and he spreads out the waters, and he made great lights, and he created the sun and the moon and the stars. Why? Because he's a God of grace. His love endures forever. He tells us the reason why God delivers and gives freedom to people in slavery is because of his grace. He delivered the Israelites from Egypt. He divided the Red Sea. He swept away Pharaoh and his army. He led his people through the wilderness. Why? Because he's a God of grace and his love endures forever. He saves his people. He protects his people. He he struck great kings. He gives his people the inheritance. He remembers his people in, in our low state and he freed us from our enemies. Why? Because he's a God of grace and his love endures forever. He tells you that the reason why everything is sustaining creation is because of his grace. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. There is no better word for Christianity than grace. It is the reason why we worship God. It is the reason why we live. It is the reason why we die. There is no Christianity without grace. There is no grace without Christianity. Now this is crazy because he describes this covenant, covenant love. An unbreakable, unchangeable, unshakable commitment of God toward his people. If you think about it, grace is the shortest and most profound description of the nature and the character of God. The shortest and most profound description of the nature and character of God. That's why Paul uses superlative adjectives like abundance of grace... Sufficient grace, surpassing ridges of grace. Actually, if you go back to history, and you find the words that theologians use to describe grace, they would always add 
to grace these words. Amazing grace, free grace, scandalous grace, surprising grace, inexhaustible grace, mysterious grace, overflowing grace, abundant grace, irresistible grace, costly grace, and extravagant grace. It is a description of water in the, me- in the midst of a desert. An anchor in the midst of the storm. A blanket in the midst of a cold night. A hug in the midst of loneliness. Now pause there for a second. Because Peter is talking to people that are suffering. Peter is talking to people that have lost hope. Full of fear, full of shame, full of guilt. Peter is talking to people that are being moved by their feelings. And we all know that feelings are not the best counselors. My feelings cause me to beat people up. And he knows he's talking to people full of fears. And fears are not the best companions. And what Peter wants to do is to give him something. Something to cling to in the midst of everything. Something to cling to when you see things and you don't see anything. Something to cling to when you feel horrible things. And he says, cling to the grace of God. Stand firm in the grace of God. Regardless of what you go through, cling to the grace of God. Stand firm in it. Because grace changes everything. You you know how secure that should make you feel? See, what, let me give you an example. One of the issues with couples nowadays, modern couples, when they get together before they get married, and they, de- they decide to live together before they get married, there's always this thing that you say in the back of your mind, well, I'm going to try this. If it doesn't work, then I'm just going to run. And you always leave the back door open. That's the idea. But we have a God, a God of grace, full of grace, that closes the back door. That it sticks around with you. That does not change. He does not go away. That he sticks with you even when you don't want to stick with him. Can you see why Peter is saying this to these people? Because that's the only thing they have. When Bible reading is not enough. When praying is not enough. When fasting is not enough. When serving is not enough, the trying to be good is not enough, grace is enough. You better write all the stuff down because I'm going to need it. Now, the beauty of grace, though, is not just that it's this beautiful definition of who God is. But we actually believe that grace is powerful enough to change people and transform people. And with this, I go to my second point, the power of grace. 
Because I think that when you truly, truly believe and understand the power, what grace means, and you truly, truly understand who God is through the lenses of grace, is you change the way you live. And I'm going to give you five reasons why. Number one, if there's no grace, there's no Jesus. The only way that Jesus makes sense is because of grace. So let me ask you 20,000 questions here really quick. Why would God become a human being? He didn't need you. He didn't need me. He doesn't need worship. Why would he become a human being? Why would he choose to hang around with people if he didn't lack anything or, or need anything? Why would the almighty, eternal, and powerful God would become a tiny human? Why come hang around with people that will reject him? The very people he loved will reject him. Why would he do that? Why would God extend compassion and love to ungrateful people? Why go to the cross and be nailed to it when he didn't have to? Why take our place if he didn't have to? Why take the punishment we deserve if he didn't have to? Why not avoid the cross? He could have just avoided the cross. Why didn't he? Why choose him to die as a criminal? A holy God dying as a criminal. Why choose him to experience loneliness and abandonment at the cross? This is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. That's why the concept of grace is incomprehensible. It doesn't make any sense. See, the only way we could actually explain this is because of grace. The only reason why Jesus did everything he did it was because of grace. That's why Jesus is the ultimate expression of the grace of God. That's why John 1.17 says that he's full of grace. That's the only way that we could actually explain Jesus. And Peter says, in the midst of chaos, when you fear and when you have anger and when you feel guilty and when you lose hope, grace takes you back to Jesus. And leaves you there. Number two. If there's no grace, there's no humility. It is impossible for us to live Christianity without humility. Our main struggle as human beings, even if you have been a Christian for years. Your three main struggles, my three main struggles are always the same. Self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and self-justification. It's always the same. And this is the part why grace is so offensive. And it's so confrontational. And it's so controversial. 
Because he tells you that the only reason why I'm here preaching this sermon today is because of the grace of God. The only reason why you're sitting there listening to this sermon right now is because of the grace of God. The reason why you were elected and chosen is because of the grace of God. The only reason why you came to believe in Jesus Christ is because of the grace of God. The only reason why you repented of your sins is because of the grace of God. The only reason why people get baptized is because of the grace of God. The only reason you are who you are and you have what you have is because of the grace of God. There is nothing in our Christianity that says that we work for anything. It's all grace from the beginning to the end. Let me tell you why grace is so offensive. Pay attention here. Because it tells you that the only thing that you used for your conversion or contributed to your conversion was your sin. That's why it's so offensive. You didn't do anything. You just brought your sin. See, that's the only way we... That's the only way we can deal with our pride. Nothing to boast about. Nothing to brag about. There's no superior here. There's no inferior here. We all the same because we all got the same grace. There's no one here above anybody else. There's no ethnicity that is above any other ethnicity. You know that? It's all grace. There's no title or position that makes you more because it's all grace. There's no talents or gifts that puts you above anybody else because it's all grace. It's grace from the beginning to the end. And Peter says, if you're dealing with pride, if you continue to struggle with self-reliance or self-sufficiency and self-justification, stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm in the grace of God. Number three, with no grace, there's no community. Just think about it for a second. If everything you are and everything you have is because of grace, and if you have no reason to boast about anything, the only way that you could actually live in community and apply community is when you start applying grace. And you see others through the lenses of grace. So Scott McKnight, he wrote a book called The Fellowship of Different. And, and, and he's got this definition of, of what grace looks like. And what I want to do is I want to grab his definition and then apply it to community. Look at here. He says, grace is God's goodness showered on people who have failed. Is that you? Of course it is. Go and do likewise. Go and love the people that have failed you. That's community. Grace is God's love and those who think they're unlovable. Is that you? Of course it is. Go and love unlovable people. Grace is when you turn your worst enemy into your best friend. Is that you? Of course it is. 
Go and love people until God turns them into your best friends. God takes people as they are and, and makes them as they can be. Is that you? You see, this is number one issue here. And if you're married, this applies to you. And if you're single, this applies to you. If you're a human being, this applies to you. Part of our issue with community is that we only see what we see. Not what people could be. We only see what we want to see and not what God can do through them and in them. Grace turns God fighters into God's defenders. Grace turns Jesus haters into Jesus lovers. And Peter says, if you can do community, stand firm in the grace of God. Number four, no grace, no transformation. You know, one of the fears that the Christian community usually uh, have is that they think that if we talk too much about grace, people are going to start doing whatever they want, right? In theology, we call cheap grace. There's this fear that if we talk way too much about grace, people will start doing whatever they want. They will walk from the Lord. They will not do God's will. But I have this strong conviction that there's nothing farther from the truth. And the reason why I could say that if you really get the concept of grace, that gives no permission and no excuse for sin. You know how I know that? Because of Peter, the very person that wrote this. See, I think that I'm a lot like Peter. You know, there's this sense of self-confidence, you know. That I could actually look at all my brothers and sisters and Jesus comes to me and says, one of you will deny me. Oh, you guys going to deny me? And I could say, not me, Jesus. I'm Hannibal the powerful. Hannibal the Viking. That's historical. Peter is the one that Jesus says, I'm... I'm about to be crucified by religious leaders. And Peter would say something like, I, I will never that. I will never allow that to happen. <laughs> That's such a human thing to do. This tiny little person is telling the God of the universe that we can't protect them. And he fell. And he denied Jesus three times. And he didn't even pray for him when he needed him the most. And he ran away like the rest of the disciples, like cowards. But Jesus dies and resurrects and comes looking for him. And gives us a lunchable fish. And bread. And tells him how much he loves him. And calls him back to ministry. And history tells us. That he died. Crucified. Upside down. For the cause of Jesus. Don't tell me that grace does not change people. 
History tells us about Abraham Lincoln buying a young slave. And, she, and he buys this girl and says, now you're free, go. And she looks at him and says, what? Go. Hold on a second, what, what's the trick here? Nothing, I bought your freedom, go. And she, gets, she goes, oh, hold on a second, can I, can I go wherever I want? Yeah, go. Can I go home? Yeah, go. Can I do whatever I want? Yeah, go, just go. No, 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 there's got to be a trick here. What do you want from me? He says, I loved you and let you go. And she looks at him and says, nah, I'm just going to stay with you. That's grace to you. You don't run from a savior like that. You come back to him. You embrace him. You love him. Because grace transforms people. And number five, no grace, no endurance. And I want to finish with this story. And I think it's a story that many people know. Horatius Spafford was the author of this well-known hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. This is a high-caliber, committed Christian. A person that loves the Lord, a person of success, a person of business, a lawyer that is doing well. He's married, his wife Anna, his five kids. And out of a sudden, his life changes. 1870, he loses his four-year-old kid. The same year, he loses his business, and he loses everything he had. A few months later, he sends his wife and his four girls on vacation. And a few days later, he receives this message from his wife. Saved alone, what shall I do? In a short period of time, he loses his kid, he loses his career, he loses his money, he loses his four girls. And as he's going to see his wife, they, the ship goes through the place where, where his four girls had died. And at that moment, he wrote this. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea below row, below's row. Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance of grace control that, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And Peter says, in the midst of chaos, when you lose hope, when you lose everything, when you're full of fear and guilt and shame, because of the grace of God, it is well, 
It is well with your soul. Stand firm in the grace of God. Remember that and preach it to me when I need it. Amen? Let's pray. Seven words. Seven words that change everything. Because grace changes everything. Stand firm in the grace of God. My prayer for us is simple, Lord. Make this real. Make this real, Lord, so we could understand your nature and your character. Make this real, Lord, so we could get so we could embrace Jesus Christ. Make this real, Lord, because that's the only way to kill our pride. Make this real, Lord, because it's the only way to live in community. Make this real, Lord, because this is the only way for us to endure. Make this real, Lord, to us. Because that's the only way. That's the only way that we continue to live for you. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.